Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. This third Sunday of Advent, we remember Jesus' priestly role, how his coming, his life, his death, and even his resurrection were all part of a great and glorious atoning for our sins. We can have deep joy in the midst of our brokenness, sadness, and gloom because we are redeemed by Jesus, our great high priest. His coming is proof that God intends to make a happy exchange. His life for our deadness, his finest garments for our filthy, stained rags. Our joy overflows, and it will be made complete when Jesus returns again. Hear these words from the writer of Hebrews, the fifth chapter. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications, with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all those who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. We light these candles with the assurance Jesus has redeemed us at great cost and with great joy. Let us pray. God of hope, you call us home from the exile of selfish oppression to the freedom of justice, the balm of healing, and the joy of sharing. Make us strong to join you in your holy work as friends of strangers and victims, companions of those whom others shun, and as the happiness of those whose hearts are broken. We make our prayer through Jesus Christ our Lord. God of joy and exaltation, you strengthen what is weak. You enrich the poor and give hope to those who live in fear. Look upon our needs this day. Make us grateful for the good news of our salvation and keep us faithful in your service until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who lives forever and ever. Merciful God of peace, your work, spoken by the prophets, restores your people's life and hope. Fill our hearts with the joy of your saving grace that we may hold fast to your great goodness and in our lives proclaim your justice in all the world. Amen. Today is from Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish, 
In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood with, will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of, of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The grass withers and the flowers fade. All right. Good morning. Thank you, Katie. And all right. Uh, kiddos, we do have Elevate this morning. So if you're first or second grade and you want to do Elevate, you can go there. And then third, fourth, and fifth grade, we also have EGC, Elementary Gospel Community, which is a chance for them. They go through the uh, New City Catechism uh, back there. And so I think Miss Susan. Uh, and Katie, who just read, are going to be back there with the kiddos. And the rest of us, as the vacuum all goes completely out of the room, the rest of us are going to hang in here. Um, good morning. All right. Happy third week of uh, Advent. Um, and this morning, we're going to go through a passage that you've probably heard, especially this time of year, uh, a number of times. Um, I, music is um, such a great memorization tool. I've, uh, I don't remember who uh, said it, but how people don't ever leave uh, a worship service humming the sermon, right? Uh, you leave with the music, and I really appreciate how seriously Eric takes that um, and uh, how much thought he puts into the words we are singing. Um, but for us as a family, like we were able to memorize the entire uh, states and capitals with this CD that went along the southern border and the northern border and the eastern border and the Midwest. Like it went everywhere. And even if you ask, our kids probably still know every state and capital. But when you ask them, they will probably sing it to you. Uh, like Montgomery, Alabama. And that's how, that's how we do it. That's how we memorize all those. Um, because we listened to that CD over and over and again in the car. We also had Bible verses and Bible stories and things like that that we would listen to. Um, and one of my favorite, uh, th this was the lyrics. I, I don't remember. I can't find it online. And I don't remember how the, how the actual tune went, but I've been kind of humming it all week uh, to the point where I think my wife is sick of it. Uh, Gideon, Gideon, I'm not Kideon. You're the one I want for the job. <laughs> 
I don't remember anything past that. Uh, have you ever heard the story of Gideon? Do you know that story? Um, Gideon was probably a story that I know that I heard as a kid, and I was like, and then I think as I grew up, I was like, I bet somebody embellished that from the Bible. I bet it was kind of taken out of context. Surely that's not, uh, that's not you know, really in there. And then, and then you kind of put it to the side, and you study all the other stuff. And then I went back uh, and read the story of Gideon. Sure enough, this is an amazing story. It's incredible, and it's crazy. It is crazy. This is the story of Gideon. It's found in, uh, basically, it's found in the book of Judges. If you've ever heard something about the Bible and been like, oh my gosh, that's in the Bible? Chances are good it comes from the book of Judges. Uh, it is bloody. It's bad. It is, it is Christian. Uh, well, it's not Christians gone wild. It's, it's Jews gone wild. It is crazy. Um, and it's just, it, it's bad. Uh, and, and Gideon, the chapters 6 through 9 are, are the, is the story of Gideon. And Gideon's kind of a nobody, really. Uh, he's the son of Joash. Uh, and essentially, just to give some context, and this, this plays into the, what we're, what we're uh, reading here. To give some context, this is what's going on. Um, Israel is just, they're spiraling. It's going bad. And... Basically, God had delivered them into the promised land, and he said, when you go into the promised land, uh, I want you to destroy and kick out anybody that's in here, any of the Canaanite religions, because their religions are bad. And if you're like, well, that's intolerant. No, I, I, I don't disagree. Uh, let me give you two things on that. First, uh, Jews would almost universally agree, and I would agree with them, uh, that this was a special order here. This is not like common all right? He doesn't call you to go into your neighborhood and kick out everybody that disagrees with you. But this was, a, this was a special revelation for this time to go into the promised land because God was forming and fashioning his people, and he wanted them to follow him and look like him, lest they follow the other religions that are already in there. And here's what those other religions had. Uh, sometimes we look, even now with Christmas, like, ah, oh, we stole that from the Celtics. Let me tell you something. Look up the Celtic religion, all right? You might be glad that we stole it from them. And then I, know, I know we're in a day of like we want to embrace. And I embrace people that are different from me for sure. Celtics weren't like this peace-loving people, just so you know. All right, back, back to uh, the, the Canaanites. They did like child sacrifice. Um, they treated women horribly. Uh, they had slaves. Um, just there was brutal, not to mention that they worshipped false gods. Uh, all the, there were lots of divinations, magic, grotesque brutality, uh, prostitution, all across the board. So Israel, what happened, Israel did not destroy them, did not kick them out. And in fact, they kind of get to settling in and absorb some of these different religions. And one of the religions, the Midianites, the Midianites during this time, they were kind of bullies. It, it's, it's funny. Anytime Israel would plant crops, the Midianites would come in and just take them. It's like the bully at school taking your lunch money. They would plant the crops like maybe this year. And then the Midianites would come in. Hey, thanks for planting the crops. We're going to take them. And they, were, they bullied uh, the Israelites. And so God comes to um, Gideon and he's like, I'm going to raise you up and you're going to defeat the Midianites. And Gideon's like, are you sure? Can you give me a sign? like five times. And the last one, if you remember, the fleece, right? He sets out his fleece. And he's like, all right, 
if you can make the fleece wet in the morning and everything else around it dry, then, and so God does it again, and Gideon's like, all right, well, okay, how about, and he just keeps, so if you're somebody that's like, when you, when you have an opportunity to trust God and you're like, I just, I just need a sign, history will tell us it doesn't matter. God will give us a sign, we're like, oh, okay, but how about this sign? Could you give me another sign? He gives Gideon like five. Um, so eventually Gideon's like, all right, all right, fine. We'll go up against the Midianites. And he takes 32,000 men, and they're going to go fight the Midianites. And God says, no. I want to make sure that you know that it is me who wins this battle, and you don't show up and be like, hey, we're so strong and mighty. We did it. So I'll tell you what. Ask your guys, anybody who's scared, let them go home. 22,000 guys, apparently, were scared. So God, let, so, so Gideon's like, uh, go home. So two-thirds of your army leaves, and you're down to 10,000. And God's like, all right, still too many. Tell you what, go down to the water, let everybody drink. And people who drink like normal, civilized human beings, send them home. But the ones who get down and they lap it up like a dog, keep those guys. Apparently, this is good news, most of us drink like normal people. <laughs> to the tune of 9,700 out of 10,000, drink like normal people. But the 300 that were lapping up water like a dog, God's like, here's my boys, let's go to war. And God takes them and defeats the Midianites with Gideon, a coward, kind of a nobody. And Gideon celebrates by asking the Ishmaelites to give him uh, their jewelry, and then he makes a, an idol, and they all bow down and worship the idol. Welcome to the story of the Old Testament, right? And if you've ever read church history, welcome to the story of the New Testament. The people of God have a long track record. If, you ever, if you've ever sitting there and gone, man, I've got serious questions about the church. Me too. Me too. And we're all, we've got a long track record of the people of God being a pretty good messed up people. It's just, this is what we do. This is what we're good at. This is why we need rescuing. Um, and uh, so... This is the story of how God has uh, brought about nobody, even in, the, even in the, the pit of darkness, to provide hope. And this is kind of the theme that Isaiah clings to. In fact, he's going to bring up this story of Midian. This is the story, uh, the theme that Isaiah is clinging to of the hope in these passages in Isaiah chapter 9. How many of you have ever heard these, these verses read or one of these verses read at Christmas time? Right? We hear them all the time. How many of you know the context and what's really going on in this passage? Probably not most. We're like, something about Jesus. I know that. Um, yeah, and full confession. I didn't fully know the context of this passage either until now. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. So for Advent, what we've done over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at waiting and remembering. Wait and remember. We first looked at the story of Abram. Abram and Sarah. And God said, Abram, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. And Abram goes, awesome. I don't have a kid. How's that going to happen? And so God, right on time, delivers a baby at the ripe age of 100. You think you're tired? 
try being 100 and having a kid. All right? Um, but God says, wait and remember, trust me. And then last week, we looked at how from that baby, God formed and fashioned a people, eventually a nation, and even a nation with a king. And so we looked last week at, the God, at God marking the lineage of his people, not with a king filled with insecurity and impatience uh, like Saul, but one who was the youngest, one who had trust and humility. And when he sinned, and mark, mark it down, David sinned greatly, but when he sinned, he was deeply convicted and repented. The king, not of the oldest, but of the youngest in the order of King David. And today, we're going to look at Isaiah 9, and we're going to see that this kingdom people that comes from here, they, again, they spiral downward, they are warned over and over, eventually their hearts become very hardened, but even there, God provides hope of a future kingdom, a future king for a remnant, for those who fear him. There is For those who hope in the Lord, there is hope. So this is our outline this morning. We're going to look at nevertheless, hope described and hope explained. So we're going to get into the text here in Isaiah 9, chapter 1. And this one is often left out when we read this uh, passage for Christmas. Verse 1, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, in the land of Naphtali. And in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. All right, ESV translates this first word as but. But, for the sake of the sermon, we're going to translate it as nevertheless. Nevertheless, there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. Let me give you some context here. First 12 chapters of Isaiah, he kind of goes back and forth between hope and warning. He is warning the people of God there is impending judgment on Judah for all kinds of things. Worshiping idols, not caring for the poor and the marginalized, for oppressing their own people, uh, for uh, hoarding the gold and silver, for turning away from God, participating in wicked practices of the neighboring nations, all of these things. Chapter 6, Isaiah has this amazing encounter with God where he stands before God and he says, I am unclean. And God does not strike him down. God cleanses him, purifies him, touches him with a burning coal that purifies him. And then says to him, "Um, I want you to go and I want you to preach this message to a people who are going to never understand you. They are never going to embrace what you're saying. And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. But it kind of feels like, right? They will be ever hearing and never understanding. Parents and teachers of junior high kids, say amen. All right. And then the final straw is this guy, King Ahaz. King Ahaz, his heart is hard. He does not want to hear from God. He doesn't want to deal with God. He is wicked upon wicked, and the people are following his lead. And he actually sacrificed his son like the neighboring, uh, like the neighboring religions did. He sacrificed a child to the gods for power. 
Ahaz is more concerned with making treaties and political alliances with other power nations, especially this dude Tiglath-Pileser, who is the king of Assyria at the time, and he's going to make Assyria a powerhouse nation. And then Assyria is eventually going to take over Babylon, and Babylon is going to take back over Assyria and when, when uh, Nebuchadnezzar takes charge, and it's kind of this whole big thing. But Ahaz fears Tiglath-Pileser more than he fears God. So he makes a deal with the Assyrians. He gives gold from the temple, gold that has been brought to God, he takes and gives to Assyria to help them defend Israel from Syria. If you can keep all this straight. So Isaiah goes to meet with King Ahaz, and he gives him warning upon warning. Turn and, and listen to God. He will actually protect you. Turn back. And Ahaz will have nothing to do with it. And so God is finally allowing the southern tribes of Judah to face judgment at the hands of the Assyrians and eventually at Babylon. And it's going to take time to carry this out, but it is certain. Judgment is going to happen. Their hearts are hardened against God. Chapter 8, Isaiah is making prophecies against uh, Judah, these warnings. And some of these are actually even beginning to unfold. And in 8, verse 17, he says this, But I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Ahaz all but invites Assyria to take over Israel. The first lands to be taken over were in the northern areas. I don't have a map, but the northern areas of Zebulun and Naphtali, the darkness is already kind of setting in as Isaiah is writing this in chapter 9. And then chapter 9, he kind of takes a sharp turn, and he gives a vision of hope for the future. So this is hope described. He says this in verse 2, the people who walked in darkness, those in Zebulun and Naphtali that Assyria is taking over, the people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Even in certain destruction, Isaiah is prophesying here that there's hope. The armies are already invading. You can practically hear the buildings crumbling in the background. And Isaiah says, in the midst of Israel being torn down, he says that God will actually multiply the nation and increase her joy. Now, this is not a hope for the wicked. This is not a hope for Ahaz. Ahaz has been given the warning over and over again. His heart is hardened against God. But for those who fear God, there is still a lineage at play. There's still a people going forth. There's still a remnant. There is light, even though the shadows and the darkness are closing in. Let me give you some overall context as well here. Uh, In the ancient world, people saw the afterlife different than we do, right? We see heaven as a place where I will go when I die. It's this, you know, we all, all good people go to heaven, which this reminder, we do not believe in a God that sends good people to heaven and bad people to hell. We believe in a God who redeems bad people, okay? Um, In the ancient world, they saw this afterlife different. This is why land was really important, because when you die, you dwelt in the land of your ancestors, it wasn't necessarily seen as like heaven like we see it. Um, it was uh, like San Diego with snow. 
Like we, we have this vision of, of heaven. I say San Diego because there's no mosquitoes and there will be no mosquitoes in heaven. Um, but uh, it was kind of, a, kind of gray and dreary, but you, were, you dwelt in the, in the land of your ancestors. And so it wasn't just God, it wasn't like God was saying, I'm going to get you guys out of here. It was saying, I am going to continue to rescue a people for myself. They saw going down the, down the way, our land will not disappear, our dwelling place eternal. They were hearing this as hope as a people, that this people, this kingdom, though it is presently in ashes and it looks to be completely done, it is not. In a couple of chapters later here, in chapter 11, Isaiah talks about the root from the stump of Jesse. What, what's a stump? A stump is a tree that's been cut down, right? It's a tree that's been destroyed, as Israel has been destroyed. But what God's saying is, it looks dead, but it's not. Under the ground, deep, in waiting, there is a root that is taking hold that will grow into a stronger tree that will never be cut down. There is hope for those who hope in the Lord. For just a minute here, friends, let's let Isaiah's words and warnings take root here, pun fully intended. Our hope, our hope, if you're a follower of Jesus, our hope is not in nations, it's not in commerce, it's not in prosperity, it's not in self-protection, our hope is not in refuge as a church, our hope is not in a safe neighborhood, certainly not in politics, it's not even in our way of life, okay? Some of those things are okay. Some of those things are worth pursuing. They're worth wanting for all people to be able to enjoy. But none of those are our hope. Our hope is that God and God alone will never be off his throne. And so even when everything else around us falls apart, our hope is never swayed. At the end of uh, Habakkuk, in chapter 3 of Habakkuk, there's this beautiful story, uh, there's this beautiful hope that, that the prophet gives. Uh, it's actually a phenomenal verse to memorize uh, if, if uh, this is something that you can just feel. Habakkuk 3, 17 through 19, though the fig tree does not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, nor the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet... I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me to tread on high places. People of God have been in a downward spiral for a while. King Ahaz is kind of the icing on the cake. He is belligerent. He's refusing God's offer for mercy and repentance. And yet God offers it even still. And so when the judgment has fallen on the nations, on the household of David... When it, when it waits no longer, when judgment has come, but God still gives hope to those who fear him, to those who love him, to those whose hope is in him. The harvest is yet to come. So what does that hope look like? How do we define that? How do we see, how do we see that? Isaiah explains in 4 through 7. The yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder 
The rod of his oppressor you have broken is on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And on his shoulder, uh, sorry, of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. All right. Again, we've heard these verses. What do they mean? What does it mean? Something about Jesus. Are we sure? You may come across some scholars that are like, well, that's not Jesus. It's about somebody else. I want to address that, all right? Because I don't want you to get out on the internet and be like, well, wait a minute. I try to prepare you for these things, okay? Again, remember the setting. Buildings are crumbling. The Assyrians are already like taking over the land here. The shadow of darkness is increasing. And Isaiah says that the darkness will not win. And then he reminds us of what God has already done as well as what is yet to come. Wait and remember. And there's three statements why he will do this, how we know. Four, these four statements, three verses in a row. First, verse four, oppression will cease. Verse four is filled with all kinds of language, right? The yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder. God delivered his people out of Egypt when they were in slavery, when there was a yoke, a burden put on them that was heavy for their shoulders. And when the Pharaoh got mad, he doubled the workload and took away the tools. And God has delivered them out of that. Not only did he remove the burden, which is on behalf of the oppressed, but also he has broken the rod of the oppressor, which is on behalf of the oppressor. In other words, in this new kingdom, there will be no oppression. God will undo them all. And the same God that took the coward and nobody, Gideon, and defeated the Midianites is the same God that is making this promise. The one who made sure that the odds were so incredibly stacked against him and against his people, there was no way that could credit anyone but him. In the fullness of this new kingdom, God will end all oppression. He will humble the mighty, and he will lift up the heads of the lowly. And all will bow before him. Some will bow in great joy. Some will bow in great frustration. But all will bow. Verse 5. This kingdom will end all war. Look at the elements of war here. The boots trudging through the land, the garments covered with blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. A fire of celebration. Earlier in Isaiah, the prophet gives vision that the swords will be beaten into plowshares. What had been meant for destruction will be refined and transformed into tools for life and growth. The boots and the blood will be thrown into the victorious bonfire when all wars cease, turning mourning into celebration. And finally, verse 6, who will establish this new kingdom, this new and everlasting kingdom? 
Will it be left to corruptible leaders? Will it be on the failures of the people of God, past, present, and future? No. It'll be a baby, a child. The hope of every ancient kingdom was the heir to the throne, right? You could have a great king, but if there's nobody after him, then what? And so Isaiah says there is a new king that he envisions. Now, some may say, well, he's referring to Hezekiah. Hezekiah would actually be a great king. This is the son of Ahaz. Hezekiah would redeem uh, the temple. He would cleanse the temple and restore the priesthood. Actually a pretty good king. Probably born a few years before Isaiah's writing this. Isaiah seems to be pointing toward a future event. But we could look at that and go, oh, okay, maybe, maybe Isaiah is writing about, about Hezekiah. But let's keep reading and remove all doubt. Isaiah gets into the names here, what he will be called. Let me give you some interesting history here. Messiah, the word Messiah simply means anointed. So technically, every king in the order of King David is a Messiah, a type of Messiah. But surely, surely the prophets knew to distinguish between Messiahs and the Messiah. Also, when we look at a king, oftentimes it was very common to look at kings as the sons of God. They were like the gods. They had a certain amount of divinity, especially in other religions, and, uh, and then Israel kind of mimics that a little bit. But surely, again, the prophets distinguish between the sons of God and God himself. Isaiah makes a sharp distinction. This is not a godlike figure. This is, this is God that he's talking about. The God. Born a man. Keep these up, yeah. Born a man, born human, under the law, as Paul would later write. A son that is given. It is a gift. It's not merited. It's not that he was born a human and then took on divinity. A son that was given. And the burden to reign and to rule will be on his shoulders, not on the people's. Alec Mochier, who's a, an Old Testament scholar, he puts it this way. He says, the shoulders of the people are delivered when his shoulders accept the burden of rule. And then the names. I don't know if you know this, but ancient names have meanings, right? My Trey, I'm a third. Ancient names have more meaning than that. <clears throat> and these names are more about the character of this one who would come. Wonderful, uh, wonderful counselor. He's qualified to rule. Counselor often refers to God himself. Divine counsel. In scripture, the counselor is often, in the New Testament, that's the Holy Spirit. God in the Psalms is seen as counsel. And this is a wonderful, a mighty, a supernatural counsel. Unlike King Ahaz, who was making terrible decision after terrible decision. This is a good counselor. Mighty God. About his person and his authority. Again, highly unlikely that the Old Testament prophets here are looking at a God-like hero. 
This is pretty straightforward. There are messiahs, and then there's the messiah. God himself. And then this, last, uh, the, uh, this next one that I love. Everlasting father. His reign is not bound to his life, uh, and it's not bound to term limits. It is everlasting. And he will not rule as a manipulative politician or like a power-hungry monarchy, but he will rule like a father with care and compassion and discipline and mercy. And then he is the prince of peace. This new world, this new society that his reign will produce. And I'm going to go back and I'm going to read this from Alec Mochier. I'm going to let him finish this description. I found his wording beautiful and powerful. All right? So everybody take a deep breath. Because I want you to hear this, how he describes this idea of the prince of peace in this last section here. The verb shalom, peace, means to be whole, to be complete. And prince corresponds to our idea of administrator. This prince then, himself a whole personality, at one with God and with his peoples, administers the benefits of peace, wholeness, in his benign rule. This rule, however, will be unchanging in its character. It will be everlasting, without end, in space and time. The fulfillment of the Davidic ideal, reflecting the holiness of God in its devotion to justice, in practice and righteousness in principle, and guaranteed by the commitment, by the zeal and the activity of God. Zeal simply means a passionate commitment. The love that tolerates no disloyalty and accepts no rival. It is the Lord who plans the future, shatters the foe, and keeps his promises. This is our hope. And just for good measure, when you go back to Isaiah chapter, or when you go back to verse 1, the light that shines over all the earth, just as the darkness was creeping in in the northern territories, the light that begins to shine in all of the earth first breaks through where the darkness began. In the land of Zebulun, in the land of Naphtali, where in Matthew 4, Jesus first began to preach, repent, change your allegiance, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God is and has always been faithful. This kingdom has come. It was inaugurated through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and one day it will be here fully. The fullness of this advent, this coming, will happen. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So what's my hope? What's my hope this morning for us, for you? Here's my hope. For the prideful and the comfortable that we would be brought low to see our need for Jesus. 
that when we put ourselves in the position of God, it will, we will lose. We will. There is not, Assyria was the most powerful nation in the world, and Ahaz would rather put his hope in Assyria. If we put our hope in anything other than him, we will lose. But here's our hope, to be brought low, to be made humble, to repent, to say, I am not God. I am not God over my whatever, fill in the blank. I need a rescuer. I need forgiveness. That we would humble ourselves or we will be humbled. Change your allegiance to the God over all things, to be forgiven, and then, as a result of that, to be forgiving. For the humble and lowly, for those filled with shame, for those who this world is a struggle or hell, those facing the darkness and wondering if God hears or cares. Listen, darkness is a reality for now. It always has been in this world. Nevertheless, it never means that God does not care. It never means that God does not hear your prayer, your cry. His promises are and have always been sure. Your hope, our hope, is certain. So our call then, as we embrace that hope, is to then turn and reflect that hope. To be a hopeful people. For those who have been brought low, for those who are humble, to actually be a hopeful people. Not a cynical people, not a bitter people, but a hopeful people. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. There is hope for those whose hope is in the Lord. Let's pray. God, there is, um, as we read through this, there's a lot of technicalities. There are a lot of historical things and facts and neat things, really, to take in. And my prayer for my own heart and for anybody here is that, one, that we wouldn't get lost in the details and forget the central theme, but also that we wouldn't get caught up in the details and find our hope simply in a growing knowledge. What is true in all of these things, you are good and you are faithful, even in the darkness, for those whose hope is in you. Would you be kind enough to reveal to us, individually, communally, all of these things, the areas where we put our hope? Your grace, your gracious, even with a people that is absolutely belligerent toward you, you still practice mercy and grace and offer repentance and turning. For those of us who are confused, for those of us who feel shame, for those of us who know we will never measure up, will never be good enough, would you release that, release us from that by 
affirming, yeah, that's not the point. Rescue us from our own kingdoms, rescue us from our own shame, from our own pride, from our own drivenness, from our own fear, um, just as you have always done for your people. May our hope be in you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.